please come in. Olivia, Aaron. I've been terribly wronged. What's happened? Well, I was at the circus yesterday, as you do. I've got terrible news. Oh my God, what? They ran out of jokes. Clowning ain't what it used to be. Oh no. The clowns have gone woke. No! <laughs> Oh, no. Don't tell me that clowns had pronouns. We need... The clowns, they had so many pronouns. Oh, no. They, had, they all had, like, four pronouns each. Oh, no. Did they have little badges that said, like, he slash ha? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the clowns, they've all gone woke. They need to take clowning back to its roots. You're right. You know, clowning isn't what it used to be. I just said that. Oh, yeah, you're right. Anyway, as I was saying, we've got to return. We've got to go to the back to the way that traditional clowning worked. We gotta talk about jesters. Yes! The feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cup is seen to shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall, as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. the weird medieval guys podcast um that's right on this episode we are going to be goofing off fooling about clowning around and cracking jokes because this episode is all about jesters everyone's favorite funny little guys i'm olivia and this is aaron our foremost expert on byzantine unicycling practices <laughs> i'm sorry that was my jester voice your byzantine jester voice <laughs> they had jesters in the byzantine empire they had jesters everywhere they had jesters in china yes i was reading about i was reading this paper that said there were a busted jester no matter how good you think jesters in europe were which fair enough to presume <laughs> that i have preconceived notions about relative jesting quality he said no matter how good you think european jesters were china had the best jesters the best in jest yes Exactly. And it was not in jest. He was dead serious. Ah. Uh, yeah. Honk. <laughs> okay, I've got to get all do. this out of my system. As you Oh, it's just so, there's just, it's, jesters provide for, I would say, just, there's such a rich vein of comedic ore, and I think we're going to be talking- Comedic or what? <laughs> Why wow. did you slap me? <laughs> And we're going to be mining that rich vein for all it's worth today, talking a bit about who jesters were, why jesters exist, and everything else you need to know about jesting. That's right. We're going to do the most unforgivable thing in comedy. We're going to explain the joke <laughs> to get a bit more serious and professorial for a second. I think the first thing that we need to address is the definitional question. So what is a jester? What does it mean to be in jest? Well, jester, I think we should start out by saying, is kind of a modern term. It's an anachronism. Modern in the sense that it was coined, I believe, actually sometime after the medieval period uh -huh. in the 16th century. Yes. So when we refer to jesters, really what we're referring to is kind of a very broad umbrella of different entertainers. Mm -hmm. That includes, uh, you know, clowns, mimes, jugglers, musicians. Knife throwers. Knife throwers. Dancers. Absolute people who trained animals. Mm -hmm. So it's a very broad term for a lot of different types of people who have existed since even before the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. So ancient Rome, they loved their jesters. And... 
this sort of uh, tradition of jesting survived well through the Middle Ages. Which is weird because the, the modern image of jesters is actually incredibly specific. It's a little guy who wears the hat. The pointy hat. The pointy hat with the bells, and he's got his little red costume. It's different he's, colors. He's got his staff. Maybe it has an inflated pig's bladder on the end, and he goes, Fiddle-dee-dee! Hey, the, the Lord has small testicles. Yeah, exactly. Wordplay! <laughs> yeah, maybe he does a handstand, and he's kind of allowed to do whatever he wants, because yes. he's sort of just on retainer to do that type of BS for, like, reasons that we don't really understand. We just wave it away and say, well, they had jesters back then they were weird back then that's what they did they were weird medieval guys but like the term jester itself this image of what a jester looked like and their exact role in society is also not strictly medieval there's some overlap because it first starts to show up in in the sort of 14th century in literature but yeah that very particular image like peak jester is like 16th century, 17th century. People aren't going around in the 7th century waving pig's bladders and going, hee And it's, it's funny because like witch burnings and not bathing, like this is something that we ascribe to the Middle Ages because it feels weird in a medieval way, but like... And it's wrong. Is not, is not medieval. <laughs> Although unlike witch burnings, we can't blame this one on King James VI, sadly. Unfortunately. God, one day, one day we're gonna do an episode with him. He's just one of the greatest freaks. One day we'll tie every historical issue back to King James. <laughs> He's one of my favorite guys. Just a cap weird guy with a big tongue. <laughs> so while while the while the modern image of the jester is kind of anachronistic when it's applied to the Middle Ages, there are definitely a lot of cultural trends that are sort of swilling around in in medieval life that would sort of eventually coalesce to create the jester, the goofy guy, the silly dude, as we know him today. So I think what will be fun uh, this week is to take a dive into and try to understand the world of uh, medieval performing arts and, and comedy and courtly life that all came together to produce this very particular, very distinctive yes, guy. Very beloved guy, someone with a lot of staying power, because even though you probably don't have a jester in your home... Although, who am I to presume? I think we all have a very well-defined image of what a jester is, and it's very interesting that it's something that we've culturally latched onto as one of the archetypes of the Middle Ages. I we think all just want to have jesters. I think it's hard to find another era where we can say that like one of the distinctive characters is the performer. So, the silly dude. Yeah, I mean, when you think about things like you know ancient Rome and ancient Greece, and when you think about the Habsburgs, and when you think about other sort of great historical eras and historical dynasties, mostly what comes to mind are things like war and royalty and things like that. We're not talking about the comedians, you know, for the most part. So, so let's talk about them. There is his turn who dies on the field. So I think it, let's, set, let's start by setting the scene a little bit and talking about the sort of world of performing arts in the Middle Ages in general. So to understand that, though, we need to really actually step back before the Middle Ages and talk a little bit about the performing arts in the classical world. Because obviously in the classical period, particularly the Greeks, developed a lot of the concepts that we use to this day in performance. So things like the idea of having something called theater, where you go to the theater and you watch a fictionalized play where people play 
different characters. Yeah. This sound this stuff sounds unbelievably basic and it's like yeah, obviously there would be like play. <laughs> but that's not necessarily the case because actually the popularity of theater and the sort of the theatrical arts and thespians, etc has uh, has waxed and waned over the years. Yeah. So the Middle Ages preserved a lot of the performing arts and the theatrical arts that the Greeks and Romans loved. So things like lyric poetry, um, absolutely huge throughout the Middle Ages, even from the beginning. Things like juggling and things that were sort of very... <laughs> um, things Don't and, laugh. And... Still, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> I just find the image of juggling funny. Yeah, the image of juggling is funny. Things like juggling and musical performances as well were absolutely huge since the very beginning of the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And what the Middle Ages also preserved from the classical world was a very well-defined structure for what types of performing arts and what types of performers there were. So there were specific names for people who performed different types of poetry, people who played different instruments, and these people all had like really well-defined sort of social roles and roles in the performances. And so there were like prestige instruments and there were like bad instruments like drums were like the the lowest of the low what's the it's the slave instrument you and know, string it's like, players it's, it's the it's the, when you're when you're in the big rowing ship exactly you gotta have the guy setting the pace and that's not that's not classy is well, it? all you have to do i mean i would say today like i wouldn't say drummers are like as respected in our society as pianists. No. Ringo Starr has been <laughs> wronged for too long. So as much as this feels like, a, oh, they discriminated against different types of performers, it's also like, you Think know, of all the jokes about bassists. Yeah, absolutely. But one thing that the Middle Ages didn't fully preserve from the classical world was their history of theater. So yeah. they did have theater in the Middle Ages, didn't they? They well, had yeah, plays. There are sort there are... Plays were written, and there are sources which describe theaters as like part of the urban landscape. But certainly by the sort of by the end of the Middle Ages, they'd kind of abandoned the concept of acting. Like there's this amazing story in the 14th century, uh, *Varilocus* by Johannes Melbert. You have no idea how hard that was to pronounce. <laughs> we're cutting all. We're cutting everything out of me trying to say that those two words i got you um they describe the ancient performing stage as a sort of as a shady place full of like prostitutes and and weird guys then it moves on to sort of having to explain what an actor is that there's, there's the brilliant quote that a peasant plays a king or a soldier and then when the performance is over he again returns to the peasant he was <laughs> so that's like an incredibly patronizing like, way to explain what acting is. I saw a great quote, actually, in my 1,300-page book about medieval theater that I was reading. God, you nerd. That um, there was a church official who said something to the effect of, an actor is a man who dresses up like a woman and does inappropriate things. So clearly there's a bit of, like, oversimplification going on there, but the idea was that these were not people of a high standing in society. No, and also, I think, just as importantly... The fact that you even have to explain what acting is, is like messed up. Whereas these days we are like doing school plays from like the age of six. <laughs> I think it's it's worth noting that of course plays did exist yeah. in the Middle Ages. So both religious and secular plays were pretty widespread because you have to remember we're living in a pre-literate, largely pre 
printing press society where one of the only ways to disseminate entertainment and um, stories is by word of mouth. Stand in a big room and shout. Exactly. And so plays were things that took place, but in some senses they might almost be more akin to what we would consider puppet shows, even though... Oftentimes yeah. they were played by actual actors, not puppets. Puppets on the cell. Puppets. Medieval Muppets. Puppets were also a big thing. Um, Kermit there wasn't... the Frog. <laughs> exactly. We like lady. to name some more Muppets. <laughs> David Bowie's Labyrinth. <laughs> that one puppet in the labyrinth. That w- the other puppet in the labyrinth. David Bowie. <laughs> the famed puppet David Bowie. Um, so my point is, there was an idea of people reciting scripts and sort of acting out stories to convey a message or a moral or a narrative. But this would fall much more in the category of what one might refer to today as a pantomime or a farce. So He's behind you! <laughs> exactly. So it's supposed to be very ribald, um, which of course a lot of theater before and after the Middle Ages was as well. But the... The emphasis wasn't on how well the actors conveyed the emotions or the stories um, or the inner lives of the characters, and there wasn't really much Listen, emphasis. Listen, I've done a couple of pantomimes, and I've really leaned into the character. Well, I'm sure you did, but that's why you <laughs> wouldn't have made it in the Middle Ages. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons I wouldn't have made it in the Middle Ages. Yeah. I would have been dead by fire. <laughs> and, so, and so even though there is a tradition of theater in the Middle Ages, I think it's important to emphasize that it's really the idea of acting as a practice Mm -hmm. and an art and a craft that has somewhat faded away. Yeah, it's a sort of reverse video killed the radio star kind of situation. Like, it was still around, but it wasn't the sort of dominant form of, um, of entertainment that you would see on either side of the Middle Ages, basically. They got way more into it in the Renaissance. Definitely. Perhaps it's not entirely incorrect to say that the idea of entertainment as a fine art in some areas had rather been lost. So even though music in particular was still really revered as a high art, most popular entertainment, as we might think of it, had kind of... Over the course of the Middle Ages, it kind of simmered down from this really well-defined structure and hierarchy into something that was kind of like an agglomeration or a medley where people... So people, the people that we think of as jesters for a lot of the Middle Ages were people who excelled or were skilled in several of these different types of performance and entertainment. It's like going from the opera house to the music hall. Exactly, exactly. And today we have Clown College. Um... <laughs> You people have stood in my way long enough. I'm going to clown college. And this is one of those things that's like so funny to someone outside the field. Like people who are like deep into clown theory. <laughs> if you're listening to this, you're probably I thinking, have a postdoctorate in clown. No, because there are Wait, people what? that there are people. Oh god, that, did I just make accidentally make fun of an entire field? There's so much if you search what, about about what? If you search How big clowning on Jason. <laughs> no, How that, loud the honk? Should be on your little tricycle when you're going around. How many people you can fit in the clown car? <laughs> do they ha- do they get like the fucking trigonometry out? <laughs> no, no. So there I'm is... sorry if you if you have a PhD in clowning. Honestly, I respect you so much. Everybody who does like a niche thing in the academic world, you are heroes. Um, I love you and respect you. Middle Middle Ages is overplayed anyway. 
Yeah, so to get a sense for some of the diversity of thought in this field, here's an article I found on JSTOR. The article is called The Clown, an Archetypal Self-Journey. Here's how the abstract starts. What is a clown? <laughs> According to the International Clown Hall of Fame, a brief history of clowning. <laughs> Clowns are comic performers characterized by colored wigs, makeup, outlandish costumes, and usually oversized shoes, whose purpose is to induce hearty laughter. This definition may be fine as a statement about circus clowns, yet it feels too narrow in focus when we reflect on the capital C clown <laughs> from a psychological perspective, for the clown can also, and so on. So my point, my point is, uh, point? I've actually lost, you know, I've completely lost the point. <laughs> I've lost the plot. Uh, we clowned around too hard and now I've lost the plot. I'm going to stop the podcast now. It's over. Um... Well, thank you so say? much for listening to this episode of Weird Medieval Guys podcast. Sure. You can pre-order uh, the Weird Medieval Guys book uh, from Blackwells and other independent retailers. Thank you so much. Everybody who's already bought uh, Olivia's book, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. You've oh, we're talking about, about Before Clowns. If you're on the fence about buying it, uh, I can tell you personally as a... Let uh, as a, So for those of you, uh, those of you who uh, hold a PhD in clown studies, will recognize that, that was a joke. All that, those numerous non sequiturs aside, I think it's time for us to move on and talk not just about the world of theatrical arts, but talk about the other world that jesters kind of inhabited, the other cultural space that they existed in, which is the world of comedy. Yes, because they existed to entertain. And to entertain, as we know all too often in the human world, it means jokes. to yeah, jokes, to do humor, jokes, bits, japes, jests, frippery. <laughs> Which is weird because the concept of comedy as we have it now didn't exactly exist in the Middle Ages. There is no, like, the word comedy comes from comedia, the Latin word, but the problem, and there are, there were comedies, but the problem is that comedy in this period means sort of a piece of writing that can either be funny or dramatic. Like the Divine Comedy. Like the, the Divine Comedy being the ex perfect example. So that word is no help at all whatsoever. Equally unhelpful is the word humor. I know you love your, uh... My etymologies. Your etymologies. Call me Isidore of Seville with the way I'm all about these etymologies. I don't understand that joke. So the word humor, which we use as sort of uh, sort of synonymous with, with things that are funny, in the Middle Ages, it referred to the four humors of the human body, which were... Sanguine. Yes. Um, choleric. Yes. Melancholy. I'm covering the list. And phlegmatic. Bingo. Those humors are, are these substances that exist within the human body that are supposed to influence your kind of demeanor and your mood and your sort of social relationship and your behavior that then sort of evolves to mean your sort of your state of mind in the early modern period and so therefore humor is something that inf in the modern definition is something that influences the humors within your body so if you're able to affect somebody's state of mind you're humorous there you go bingo i can do it too <laughs> not as well but i can do it 
So there isn't really a concrete definition or conception of comedy purely as things that make you laugh. And so in some senses that makes it a little bit hard to research comedy in mm -hmm. the Middle Ages because it's not really well-defined and no. well-marked. But in some senses, um, there are places where we can read between the lines. So certain things that were funny then are funny now and have always been funny, so... I'm told you have some medieval jokes for us. <laughs> yeah, let me find this. Um, so things like sex and drinking and fighting and jokes about other people's nationalities, places of origin, yes. and religions. Yes. So all it's all the same stuff. So it's a lot if I go of the and see, same If I go stuff. to Live at the Apollo, well, pretty much the same themes. Basically, yeah. If I go to see Brian Butterfield, Live at the Apollo, hit me. Okay, first of all, so I have a few jokes from a medieval Italian joke book. I also want to give a shout out to the medieval Turkish humorist Nasruddin, who is... <gasps> Yes. Possibly never existed, is kind of like a Robin Hood character, um, and left behind, or at least there are quite a large body of jokes attributed to him. All of the jokes are about Nasruddin. So here's one that goes, Nasruddin's neighbor came to his house and asked to borrow his donkey. Nas donkey. Na <sighs> Carry on. Nasruddin said, I'd be happy to, but he's currently on loan to another friend of mine. Just then, they heard the donkey bray from behind Nasruddin's house. But I can hear him at your house, said the neighbor. Nasruddin said, I can't believe you'd take a donkey's word over mine. <laughs> so yeah, banger. It's pretty good, yeah. Still good. Probably, um, even, probably even better in, in Ottoman Turkish. Here's an example from the Facetiae, an Italian joke anthology from the late 15th century. Um, so notably, most of these jokes are about people from Florence. One day we will probably <laughs> devote an entire episode into how Florentines were like the sort of comedic archetype. Well, we need to do an episode about Florence. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean the Fl Florence is one of the great sort of comedy <laughs> reservoirs. Yes. I'd say, but I mean, Fl Florence, it's suffice to say, was a very important city in the in the high and late Middle Ages, and sort of loomed large in the cultural imagination, particularly the cultural imagination of Italy. Yeah, in the medieval Italian mind, everyone from Florence was like, kind of like an urban intellectual, but also like a backwards hillbilly, and they were all gay, but also like all adulterers who would sleep with your wife, and like, <laughs> you could just say anything about Florence, and it was like, yeah, <laughs> they are like that. It's like Florida now. Yes! You're right. So bearing that, well, I don't know about urban sophistication. <laughs> bearing that in mind, a Florentine had in his home a young man who instructed his children in the elements of knowledge. After a long stay, the young tutor felt himself so much at home that he had in turn the housemaid, the nurse, and finally the mistress herself. When the master of the house, who was a jovial fellow, discovered this, he summoned the young man to his private chamber and said, I find it unmannerly of you, sir, that in taking your pleasure of my entire household, you have made an exception of me. <laughs> yes! This goes so hard! So good. Should we do one more? Yeah, one more. Rule of threes. Oh, can I do one? Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, do you want butt sex, yo mama, virgins? I'll take all of the above, but yeah, what, do you, you know what, what kind of jokes do you want? Here we go. I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy this one. Okay. 
This is another Florentine joke. Yeah. A young Florentine was going down to River Arno with one of those nets in which they wash wool. I met a frolicsome boy who, out of fun, asked him what birds he was going to catch with that net of his. I am going to the brothel's outlet, replied the youth, to spread my net there and catch your mother. Mind you search the place carefully, retorted the boy, for you will sure find yours there also. Ah, classic. Oh! Burn! Yo mama, ho! Yes. But when medieval people wanted to sort of make make jokes and, and make merry, they weren't just making jokes about people's geographical location and uh, how their their mama was a hoe. They also used satire to kind of parody the serious arts of the day. And one of the greatest examples of this was love poetry. And here we go. We're returning to friend of the show, one of the all-time greats, one of your favorite guys, the biggest simp in Wales. Daffid ap the father, also the father of po Welsh poetry, arguably. The daddy of Welsh poetry. So this, I mean, this guy, I mean, he's one of the first people in the Middle Ages to be sort of writing long form, yeah. recognizably modern poetry in the Welsh language. The thing about Daffid ap is that he's writing in large part, as we explored in the previous episode, about uh, relationships and about sexuality and more particularly about how bad he is at both. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I found a, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be upfront with you. This was a quote that I found on Wikipedia about him, but it's so, it's so good that I had to bring it to the show. Please. This is from Welsh novelist Gwyn Jones, who writes, No lover in any language, and certainly no poet, has confessed to missing the mark more often than Daffod Uncooperative husbands, quick-triggered alarms, crones and walls, strong locks, floods and fogs and bogs and dogs are forever interposing themselves between him and golden-haired Morford, black-browned Daigadu, I'm so sorry, or Gwen, the infinitely fair. So he, he's, he's open. I should mention one of my other favorite things about Daffod is that he also wrote much more conventional love and nature poetry, and almost all of it is, like, crushingly beautiful, which I think is so cool. My boy's got range. He is the true example of someone who's using their powers for bad. <laughs> He's, like, he is chaotic neutral, I think. Oh, I, love, I, I love him, and by the way... I should say to all of our Welsh listeners, we are going to keep up the fight of making sure that the wonderful world of medieval Wales gets its fair, finally gets its fair hearing as one of the, one of the great cultures and not just for mining, uh, for mining comedy from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic stuff. Yes. We might be two podcasters of sort of ambiguous origins. Ambiguous extraction. <laughs> One of whom has a tangential connection to Wales through a grandparent. I have... But either way, we are medieval Wales' strongest soldiers. Yes. God bless. Medieval Wales is... Medieval Wales' is second and third strongest soldiers. Exactly. After Owain Glyndir. Yes. So, uh, good old Daffid wrote a wonderful poem called uh, Trouble at the Tavern, which I am going to read a, a short excerpt from. For context... Uh, Daffod, it's, it's autobiographical. Daffod has shown up at, the, at a pricey tavern, paid way too much for food and wine, spied a hot babe, 
in the tavern, wined and dined her, and is now sneaking around the tavern now that everybody's gone to sleep to go and uh, get it on with her. When at last, wretched journey, all did sleep save her and me, I to reach the lady's bed most skillfully attempted, but I fell, noised it abroad, tumbled brutally forward, rising from such grief than spry. Nor was my leap unhurtful. On a stupid and loud stool, ostler's work, to the chagrin of my leg, I barked my shin, came up, a sorry story, and struck, may Welshman love me. Too great desire is evil, every step unlucky still. By blows in mad bout betrayed, on a tabletop my forehead where all the time a pitcher and a loud brass cauldron were. Collapse of that stout table, two trestles downed, stools as well, cry that cauldron uttered, behind me for miles was heard. Pitcher, shouted my folly, and the dogs barked around me. Wow. In a foul bed at the wall, bothered for their packs and, three, and fearful, three English lay in panic, Hitchin and Jenkin and Jack. The young one sputtered a curse and hissed forth to the others. There's a Welshman on the prowl. <laughs> wow. Oh, hot ferment of betrayal. He'll rob us if we let him. Look out, you're not a victim. And, the, and, it, and it, it goes on That's from there. That's beautiful. Um, Just uncannily like an episode of Toast of London. Yeah. That whole episode, just like walking into cauldrons and pots and banging your <laughs> banging your shins. And anyway, it ends with him having to run away and not getting his hole. It's so great. It's great. I we love, love Daffod. It's great because an essential part of the humor is that he's writing about himself and making fun of himself. And I think that's just wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's classic sort of self-deprecating uh, humor, isn't it? Yeah. It's the, it's the classic sort of... It's the classic... Dare I say it, the classic British comic hero <laughs> who is an eternal failure. Yeah. Not saying Daffod up when I'm is British. Don't at me. <laughs> Sorry. So this sort of more body humor was, uh, of course, a staple of medieval poetry and song and theater. But there was, of course, as well, somewhat more complex or more um, sort of critical types of humor as well. Types of humor that we today are still familiar with, such as satire and mm -hmm. irony. Those were very well represented in the medieval humor landscape. Yeah, and one of the great formats that took was uh, this wonderful concept. We, you don't see it so much anymore, um, which is the parody sermon, which is wonderful. So around Christmas time in the medieval village calendar was carnival season. And this is when you would get all sorts of people would come to town and, and do their japes and tricks. And, and uh, it would be merriment and jolly, and jolly would be everywhere. Uh, joyo, pies eaten. Oh my god, pies, ale swilled. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Oh god, I would love to eat a pie and swill an ale. You know what, I think I would do really well in the Middle Ages. Because I can yeah. put down a pie and some ale like no one else. <laughs> Uh, you, you make a great comely lass <laughs> back in the day. Anyway, so one of the forms of entertainment, as I said before, would be the parody sermon, where they would take the structure of a sermon, as would be sort of delivered to you every Sunday at church, and take the piss. And a lot of the humor was food-based, interestingly. And I think it's important to note that because, you know, in a pre-literate, um, pre-modern and pre-printing press society, 
the sermon is the closest thing in your sort of weekly calendar to watching the news of basically communing publicly in the sort of public realm. And so the way that I like to think about this, the parody sermon, is they function basically the same as like something like the Colbert Rapport or like another sort of parody news show. Um, so you'd have these, these sermons that would be about fake saints. And the, a lot of these names were food-themed. So we have Le Sermon Joyeux de Saint-Jambon et Saint-Anduille, which is the very merry sermon of Lord Saint-Ham and Saint-Sausage. Uh, there's other food-based ones like Saint Grape, Saint Onion, Saint Herring, who famously smelled bad. Uh, we also had Saint Harry, Saint Falsehood, Saint Snotnose, and Saint Louse. So interestingly, by the way, a lot of these sermons were written down in Latin, which tells you an enormous amount about who the audience was. <laughs> because, of course, the only people who, would, who were reliably literate in Latin... Uh, or actually, no, not even them reliably, but the, only, the people who were most likely to be Latinate were the clergy. So the, the clergy were enjoying table taking the piss out of their religion. The church was a, a massive power structure in the Middle Ages, as it is to an extent now. And of course, the people at the top wielded a massive amount of power, social and political. But I think it's important to note that there were also the people down below, the lower ranking members of the church, like the friars and the mm -hmm. more regional church authorities. And these people, despite being, you could say, instruments of this kind of power wielding mechanism also saw themselves as being beneath the people who were up top and seeing themselves as sometimes being disenfranchised. And so rituals like this were one of the few ways in which they could reclaim or comment upon or invert sort of the normative power structures. Yeah, it's a com I mean, comedy has a couple of functions, I think. And one of them is this sort of that release of that kind of tension. Another role that comedy plays in culture is it's a binding agent. Enjoying comedy and laughing at, at it together, it brings you together with other people. It, it gives you a shared experience that you then sort of bond over. So I'd like to read to you some excerpts from a... Uh, this is a Dutch parody sermon called The Sermon of Saint Nobody. And Saint Nobody is the patron saint of alcoholics. Yes! Oh my god! <laughs> oh, that's... Please. So I'm gonna, have... we're going to do a social experiment to see if this, this medieval verse from the medieval Netherlands is still funny today. So this is, the, the, I'm going to play, read you uh, four very short excerpts. We're going to see if it hits. These words can be found in the book of Calves Tripe, in the chapter full of green grass, on the page illuminated with shite. How are you doing? Pretty good? I got a smile out of it. Okay. This is really like one of those YouTube try not to laugh. <laughs> I'm going strong so far. Only drinking will put heaven in reach. He who dishonors his trousers will receive absolution aplenty. 40 days of grace minus two times 20. <laughs> oh, we're getting there. That was, this is really like one of those LOL so random, like, you know, <laughs> unicorns and waffles. <laughs> And you women and your daughters, come to this empty place. 
Take of its waters, and fill up your bodies with the stuff that we pour, or else you'll be virgins forevermore. It's pretty good. Yeah. And finally, this is the, the, the closing line. That same blessing I now pass to you. May your shirt be wet in the front and on the back too. <laughs> what does that mean? I still don't know. I think it means somebody threw up, throws up on you. I don't know. Uh, I dare not even ask. So that's the sort of ribald stuff that people are performing every Christmas in between tankards of ale and pies. No, it's, it's, I think it's great. And it's, I think it's, it's certainly true that it's been well documented that bishops and deacons and cardinals and high-ranking members of the church often made sort of public statements against this sort of comedy, which they thought was very lowbrow, it was a distraction, and it was going to lead you into sin, and it was sinful in nature, but you mean that, that, that You mean that that wasn't highbrow comedy? I think it's almost... I don't know if there's a name for this sort of phenomenon, but I think you can almost... From the number of statements about this type of comedy that have been made in the Middle Ages by church officials, you can almost sort of prove that this was a huge thing, because otherwise, why were they talking yeah, about you have it to, so you have much? to address it. Exactly. Clearly drove them insane. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great. I was reading a great story about mm -hmm. two traveling friars who were traveling across Lincolnshire in England and found their way to a monastery, when they arrived and knocked on the door, the friars in the monastery saw them and thought that they were traveling minstrels and said, hey, come on in, and greeted them, you know, really warmly. And then, allegedly, when the two guys came in and said, oh, we're not actually minstrels, we're friars and we're just looking for a bed and some food to eat, the people in the monastery kicked them back out. <laughs> oh, that's a shame because that was a great setup for like a, a sort of a farce where they have to sort of pretend yeah. to be like minstrels and pretend to like like write a poem on the fly <laughs> definitely uh, uh, okay someone someone write that story please please it's anyway so i think what we can take from this is that medieval people found a lot of the same stuff funny that we do both skewering sort of uh skewering the culture their their own sort of culture and the high-mindedness of the righteous but then also just jokes about florentines <laughs> and <laughs> Your mama jokes. Like, the, the whole spectrum's there. Yeah, I think we've kind of introduced the idea of jesters and then sort of backed up and we're approaching it from a very roundabout way. But yes. before we get... We're getting back to jesters. ...more sort of concretely into the jester as a distinct entity, I think hopefully you can... We can say at this point that we've established that comedy was really important to medieval people for a variety of reasons not least because it was one of the few forms of entertainment and it was accessible to everybody. So then where do jesters fit into all of this? And how is it that they become such a distinctive group of people? So, we've talked about comedy as a means of skewering social norms, but I think it's important to note that there isn't really a place for comedy, a well-defined sort of distinct place for comedy, 
and for this type of ribald satirical humor in this sort of very conventional Christian worldview and world structure. Absolutely not. So even though perhaps no one is stepping in and keeping you from engaging with comedy and from, you know, engaging with humorous material, it's not necessarily something where there's a place, a well-defined place in society for someone who does that as their full-time job. No. And so that's where the idea of the medieval jester, who, as we've said before, is not really called a jester at this point. I think maybe calling him a minstrel yeah. or a fool or a buffoon even was a term that was used is a bit more accurate. Histrionic is another great Histrionic one. is great. And so a lot of these people come in from places where they have already lost their standing in society. So this can be for a variety of reasons. So how do you actually get into gesturing? How do you make your break in, you know foolery in the Middle Ages. Well, we know from records that a lot of these people came from actually quite educated backgrounds, although perhaps not backgrounds where they were particularly successful. So people who were monks or who were teachers or who were lawyers but had been perhaps disgraced for some reason or who didn't quite fit into the social norms, perhaps monks who were found to have broken their vows or people who had dropped out of university. Um, or it had to leave their place of work or their home for whatever reason, might turn to this entertaining lifestyle as a means of finding a place in society, carving out a place. I mean, that's more or less why we're podcasters now. <laughs> exactly. This disreputable profession. <laughs> There's no place for us in society. There ain't no place for podcasters. We just go outside and get spat on. <laughs> Oi, you people from the Weird Medieval Goddess podcast, my son Danny listened to you, and now he won't shut up about Constantinople. It's unbearable. God, I hope that's our legacy. <laughs> um, but of course, it's also the case that some people who were referred to as fools, it was because of a condition that they mm -hmm. had suffered since birth. In the modern day we tend to latch onto the idea of the jester or the fool or the minstrel as like a clever trickster, someone who is mm. very foolish, but who deep down inside is probably literate, intelligent, someone who's well-spoken and eloquent, and someone who's a bit above it all. But it's not the case that this was the archetype for every single person in the Middle Ages who was considered to be a, quote, fool. No, a lot of the time, the people who were performing uh, were people who had intellectual disabilities or some kind of physical deformity, and medieval culture was not kind to those people. Because in medieval culture, there was kind of less of a distinction between, quote-unquote, humanity and the sort of, the other sort of animals of the animal kingdom. They were just sort of like shittier versions of people. They were sort of assumed to have their own kind of like worldview. <laughs> and everything was sort of seen to have been created by God for yeah. a reason, so everything had its place. Yeah. Because of those two things, people who are born not resembling or not behaving the way that a person should be, it was very, the counter to all that is that it was very easy to sort of dismiss them as not as human, as, as a quote-unquote average person. 
And so if you were in, if, if you were in that situation due to, you know, either due to an accident or due to, you know, you just the luck of your birth, there were not a whole lot of options available to you. Um, and one of, but one of the options was potentially that you could become a, an entertainer or a quote unquote fool. And so a lot of the time, the jesters, the entertainers were these kinds of, you know, what you, what an academic would call a sort of a subaltern people, people who are sort of kind of voiceless on the margins of society. Um, and that combined with the general sort of distaste for comedy among the kind of the, the, the pious elites of, 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 of the church and so on, um, meant that a lot of these entertainers occupied this kind of uncomfortable peripheral role where they are both kind of kind of like exalted performers and sort of performing to an, an audience that's enjoying their work, but also this kind of subhuman status. And that's a really weird thing to think about, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because we've talked about how comedy was um, a means of skewering or inverting the social order. And I think that people who were um, seen as fools or minstrels or whatever you want to call them, whether it was something they had come into more or less by choice or something that they were born into, this was a, a means of the normal people or the sort of people who had their place as it was perceived in the Christian society of interacting with what they perceived as things that were less human than them or less normal than them or sort of less right than them. And that's part of the reason when you hear, like, for example, these, these denunciations of actors and, um, and, and dancers from priests who say things like, oh, well, he contorted his face to make it look less like the, the face that God gave him. It gives me a bit of the heebie-jeebies. Absolutely. Like, it's not, as, it's not as funny. Rightly so, yeah. Yeah, because we've talked about the jester as also sort of the stereotype of the jester as someone who's on retainer. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's important to note that there are different types of jesters and different types of fools, and there were people who were kept on court, who were given court positions, in, ca in some cases very lucrative and even prestigious yeah. court positions, which we'll get into a bit of that later. But there's not many places. There's not many places for that, and you were always at the mercy of the Lord. So it's not, especially in the Middle Ages, before this trope of the jester as the funny guy who's also clever became solidified, there were a lot of kings who made it pretty clear that they had very specific wishes for their entertainers, even the ones who they kept at court, and that they were liable to be dismissed at any time if mm -hmm. they displeased the king. And I think that, that that brings us on to a really important point about the way that these entertainers, call them jesters, call them whatever, existed almost outside of the feudal economic order, where, you know, the feudal... Feudalism, my God, I, this is going to piss off so many people because there is no accepted definition of feudalism. I mean, there are there are plenty of historians who will sort of swear blind that feudalism, as sort of popularly imagined, never existed. But basically, the, the, the default image of feudalism is that you have a hierarchical system uh, where people are 
in a space pretty much in a set cast and bound by these bound legally by these obligations. A king has a certain kind of obligation to the realm, a peasant farmer has a certain kind of obligation to his landlord. The jester, the minstrel, the entertainer doesn't have that. He survives on his wage labor. So the jester is actually a proto-service worker, essentially? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I, I did my time as a barista, <laughs> all right? It's a bit like having to pretend that you don't hate the people that you're serving. Yeah. Like, that kind of precarity that, they, that these people experience combined with the kind of social condemnation and, and subaltern status that a lot of them had meant that it was a very difficult life for all but the most sort of successful of these performers. I think there's there's a certain irony to be to talking about this because while we were recording this, the uh, Hollywood actors' strike is still going on. Yeah. And a lot of people sort of have dismissed this as saying, like, oh, what do you mean that, like, you know, Scarlett Johansson is on strike? She makes, like, $100 million a year. But, of course, most actors acting in movies and TV and theater are in a very precarious sort of position financially and are kind of living job to job. Absolutely. And I think there's a, there's a, that's something that's continued down the ages, even though the social status of actors is no longer that they're basically equivalent to beasts or prostitutes. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially because there was, as we mentioned, a hierarchy of prestige mm. in what jesters could do and who they could do it for. And I think that it's also worth noting that the minstrel or the jester was almost a more sort of fluid or a more upwardly mobile type of person mm. than the average medieval person. So a lot of church officials made this distinction that actually entertainment was okay if, for instance, it was it was uh, music and it had sort of a more, you know, religious bent to it, whereas the average person might be fine with just any sort of old type of entertainment. So there's actually a manual, I think from 14th century France, that was basically a jester's manual, <laughs> which is great, that says things like, oh, you should learn as many, you know, highbrow religious songs as you can, but it's also good to make sure that you can still do, like, shadow puppets and juggling. <laughs> because the idea was that you could potentially... If you were skilled enough and you were lucky and you knew the right people or met the right people, you could probably land or, you know, you could possibly land a somewhat cushy job. But if that didn't pan out, then you were stuck in the tavern, you know, doing like X-rated shadow puppets or whatever. Yeah. For like a bunch, of, about, a bunch of drunk people. For songs pennies. about boobs. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so it's... So, you know, plus ça change. <laughs> yeah, which is really interesting as well, because it's... Even though the church made this distinction between, like, good entertainment and bad entertainment, it was often the same people supplying both of these mm. because of this very precarious situation that the jester found oneself in. Yeah. It's worth noting as well that this was one of the few careers where there was perhaps not fully but a greater degree of equal opportunity for both genders mm. that doesn't mean that there weren't certain types of jesting that were seen as bad for women to do or more socially acceptable i think i can guess which ones <laughs> for, for certain genders but 
there are extensive records of female dancers and jugglers and singers and performers and tumblers and so on. So it was a very fluid social category. So you're telling me that clowning hasn't gone woke. Clowning's always been woke? Clowning has always been woke. Let's go. Yeah, but it is it is really interesting because I was reading in this book about like, even though these people were seen as like a bit less than, it was also a massive point of prestige to have a bunch of goofy guys on retainer. Absolutely. And how these households and also like abbeys and convents and whatnot, you can see in their account records that they spent massive amounts of money. You know, it's like, is in some cases, it is literally like the drill meme of like, you know, <laughs> grain, $5, you know, candles, $10, um, jesters. Jesters. $500,000. Please help me budget. My monks are starving. Obviously, there's this hierarchy of like different kinds of performers, and 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 you could end up anywhere on that uh, on that spectrum and oscillate wildly up and down one way or another. But let's say you got the bestest job, as it were. Let's say you become the court jester or a court jester for your local king. What's that life like? Pretty fucking sweet. <laughs> God, it would be good. Uh. So I think it's also, you could basically, you know, it was a, a career possibility that if someone took a particular shine to you, someone in a very high ranking position, a monarch, but perhaps also a noble or a different member of a royal family, they mm. could basically say, well, I'll put you up. I'll give you a house and some land and some money. And I just want you to hang out and show up occasionally from time to time. Yeah. The most famous of these, for sure. Please, introduce him. A guy named Roland the Farter, a 12th century flatulist. Uh, and if you don't know what that means, he was given significant amounts of land by the King of England, Henry II. And in exchange, every year at Christmas, he would perform one jump, one whistle, and one fart. So good. That's... And he was given, like, an estate. Like a country house for this. I do that for 25 pounds. <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny because I was reading a story about Henry I uh -huh. in the 12th century who had a royal mime. And the royal mime earned enough money through his jesting. I got the sense from reading this that he did things other than miming. Um, but he was a general entertainer. And he earned enough money through this profession, um, that he decided to open a priory. So basically like, uh, Abby, and then decided to retire from jesting and become the first prior <laughs> and basically became oh. a, a man of the church. And then what a life, eh? In the years following that, there were reports of miracles of dubious authenticity. <laughs> taking place at this priory. <laughs> oh, oh, he's so cool. So cool. What a king. And I think to us, having sort of described the, the fool as like 
basically less than, perhaps even less than human. I guess that sounds a bit weird yeah. now, doesn't it? Like, Well, how... even if you haven't been, like, demonizing these people as, like, some sort of beast in human flesh, uh, one jump, one whistle, and one fart will not get you very far in the modern English housing market. It will certainly not get you an estate. So I think it's pretty clear that there's a bit more going on in this relationship than their sort of contractual obligations. There's, they're providing other services as well. So over the course of the Middle Ages, it actually became a lot less easy to just make work as like a traveling vagabond minstrel. There were a lot of cases of people disguising themselves as minstrels or even minstrels themselves sort of taking advantage of the privilege of just being able to rock up places and be let in. There was an example of like a noble who hated a king dressing up as a minstrel and going into his great hall so he could like shout profanity <laughs> at the king, which is great. Bitch! <laughs> but what this basically led to was... Uh, the slow sort of introduction of legal restrictions against who was allowed to do this type of thing yes. and where and when. Wow, look at that. Isn't that funny? Yet another case of, over the course of the Middle Ages, life becomes increasingly bureaucratic, increasingly standardized, increasingly recognizably modern. Exactly. It's almost like the, the Middle Ages is not a historical cul-de-sac, but is in fact an incredibly important period when a lot of the key institutions of our modern life were invented. And so, although um, traveling minstrels were still allowed into courts, there were the introductions of things like jester's guilds, where if you weren't a guild-licensed jester, <laughs> good luck getting into anywhere of repute. And at the same Sorry, time... Sorry, buddy, you gotta be with the union. Look <laughs> on this site. <laughs> at the same time, this idea of, of a court a royal court became increasingly well-defined and also became sort of increasingly extravagant mm. and ex increasingly expansive. So a court, generally speaking, is a monarch or a noble and kind of... All his favorite guys. All his favorite guys. That's like friends, family, servants, you know, employees, and there's varying degrees of closeness to the monarch. You yeah, know. like, like a, I mean... We joke a little bit about it being sort of unstandardized. It, it is it is sort of personalistic and unstandardized to some degree. But there's also a lot of, like, great offices of state involved. Like the Keeper of the Privy Seal, the, oh, yes. the Lord High Chamberlain. It varied. But the point being, it's a, it's a bit like uh, a mix between the, the cabinet and a group chat. That... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Succinct. <laughs> that's such a good... No, that's such a good way of putting it. Exactly. So the idea being that if you're a monarch, you need someone to do something like get your horse or, you know, which is like, you know, the medieval equivalent of bring my car around um, <laughs> or, you know, bring your food out. But you also want these people to be people who you can trust. Mm -hmm. And so... Over the course of the Middle Ages, there's a slow sort of merging of these two ideas towards each other so that you have roles like cupbearer, the person who carries the king's cup, which on paper is perhaps a role that you need someone to fill, 
But awarding that role to someone is also a means of rewarding them and expressing trust in Patronage, them. Patronage, baby! Exactly. And so not only that, but if you see someone out on the streets who you like, who's playing a good song, you can be like, how do you feel like having a court position? You know, you can be my royal lute player or whatever. Um, or if someone does you a good turn, you can reward them with a court position. And of course then as well, that often entails a nice house and some land and probably a pretty cushy annual stipend. And so when we talk about people like Roland the Farter or <laughs> this guy that, um, Henry the first guy who became a prior, it's also the case that these people were perhaps not representative of your average fool. No. Because they were probably people who had already done the monarch a good turn or who were already in good standing. And so it, fool for them became kind of like a prestige position all over again. There you go. Yeah. And so it became more common because of this for a king to have a specific guy on retainer who the king trusted, who could be an advisor, who could still retain the fool's privilege of acting outside of these social norms, but now with a degree of trust and with a more well-defined, uh, more crystallized place in the medieval power structure. Which goes to, which goes to show, I think, a, a kind of a general point about what the social role of comedy and entertainment is, because as much as it is something that can sort of poke fun at and tear down structures of authority, comedy can also reinforce it. And one of the ways that it does that is, you know, I remember I, I mentioned earlier the sort of the way that comedy is a binding agent. It, like, it, it helps develop camaraderie. And by the way, that was, as an aside, that was another sort of social role that we don't, haven't talked about for Jester, which is a lot of them went out with soldiers on campaign to sort of basically... Uh, to sort of tell funny stories and heckle the enemy and get people in a good mood and ready to sort of fight cohesively. Yeah, they made a movie about that. Here it comes. What's the joke? Good morning, Vietnam. <laughs> nice. Nice. Good one. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's good morning, Vietnam all over again. But anyway, so... Um, what, I, what I sort of ask you to do is imagine that maybe that, and you know, this is this is not something that really we can attest to in the sources because it's not something that would have necessarily been recorded, but you could you could very easily imagine that part of the reason, another reason why the, the fool is such an important and ubiquitous part of royal courts, again, everywhere from fucking Portugal to China, is because the comedy that they can provide might perhaps bind... The, the fractious court of royal power brokers in this, again, incredibly violent and unstable age, <laughs> together as a sort of more as a as a more cohesive unit, sort of start to understand each other's, start to start to understand yourselves as a group with common interests, and that's quite a useful thing for a king to have. This exact same dynamic of sort of binding people together, I think we can also 
potentially understand it as something that that was useful for less powerful groups in society. And to talk about that, I'd like to return uh, to our old friend David Huilen, um and think about that's the story that I told earlier in the context of medieval Welsh society. Because the truth about this is that when, when David is writing, uh, Wales is a colonized nation. It's being settled, by this, this is a story about a Welshman wandering around in his own country and being harassed by English people. It's a very political poem, even if it is like goofy and it's sort of about people falling over and trying to sleep with hot babes. What he's doing there is appealing to, um, to a Welsh audience who would recognize this experience. He's speaking to something of the indignity of being hunted in your own country. And so, yes, you know, that social function of comedy, it can reinforce power structures, but it can also bind together people and help them to understand their own, the, the injustices that they face in their own lives. Absolutely. And I think that even though the jester was sometimes a marginalized figure and sometimes a maligned figure, I think in that vein it's easy to see how in some cases, especially towards the more Shakespearean end of the spectrum, the jester also became a kind of folk hero, an mm. almost larger-than-life sort of trickster figure who is perhaps more like Robin Hood um, or a similar you know, folk hero than someone who is a subservient and someone yeah. who exists you know, as a, a part of a royal power structure. He sort of comes... The, the jester sort of evolves in the late medieval, as we mentioned, it sort of evolves in the late medieval to early modern period into becoming from this sort of very marginalized figure to becoming a sort of trickster god this guy who's a, a sort of loki like figure there's always the, he's not the most powerful person in the room but he's always the smartest yeah absolutely absolutely well yeah have you heard of um like stanchik the the polish jester who's like a a folk hero in poland uh remind me he's just um that's the fucking guy from the painting, isn't it? Yeah, it's the sad jester. Yeah, you painting. know that sad, je the sad jester meme. This is that guy. Yeah, it's Stanchik receiving news that Smolensk has been captured. Right. So, so yes, yeah, so there's very little evidence that Stanchik ever existed or who exactly he was, but he's essentially a Polish um, folk hero who was a jester in the courts of three different Polish kings around the turn of the 16th century. And he's always sort of been considered to be a larger-than-life figure. So it says he's remembered as a man of great intelligence and as a political philosopher, and that he used his job to criticize and warn his contemporaries by the use of satire. So in this case, humor became a means of sort of stepping outside of, but also sort of stepping above the established status quo. Well, and, and a great example of that, by the way, is the famous painting of Stanchik receiving the news uh, from Smolensk, because if you... The, the, the version that's in the meme is kind of zoomed in. And yeah. if you zoom out on the actual original painting, you'll see that he's sitting alone, sort of distraught about the news that... 
this vitally important, strategically important city has been lost by Poland. Whereas everybody else is in the other room partying. Yeah. He's the only person who knows what is coming. And of course, that's an incredibly evocative image. And that specific moment that that painting is depicting uh, loomed incredibly large uh, in the Polish sort of imagination in the, in, in the period that painting was uh, done, which was the late uh, 19th century, because this was in the aftermath of the partition of Poland. Uh, where the, the sort of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which had been this sort of great power in, in Central and Eastern European politics, was gradually sort of carved up by the Habsburgs, uh, the Russians, and the Prussians. So, so this, is, this is an incredibly uh, evocative image because it's foreshadowing, in many ways, the painting is foreshadowing what's about to happen to Poland, even though the actual... The actual historical statue, if he did existed, did not exist in the period of the partition. It's a, it's what they call in clown college a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so much for tuning in and clowning along with us today hope you enjoyed the episode um and as always drop us a five-star review tell us how much you love us and we might just read one out on the show yes i've got one someone commented yes (laughs) thank you but respectfully no we can do better (laughs) like for example this wonderful review left on spotify by duncan adamson who says great show Taught me that if I can't divorce my potato-eating medieval peasant wife, I can kill her with a single Dorito. That's continuity. And this one, this this one's just for me, alright? This is from A.D. who says, Great trickster episode, though I did cry on the inside when it ended without a single utterance of Constantinople. I'll soothe myself by breaking a quern in a medieval whale's internet wormhole. I'm so glad somebody picked up on the Constantinople thing. Sometimes I just do jokes that are only funny to me, and then I forget. Now that you've read this out loud, no one can say that we haven't mentioned Constantinople. We mentioned the Byzantine Empire loves, it's fine. Just a reminder as well, my book, The Weird Medieval Guys book, is out on November 2nd. There's still time to pre-order it. Make sure that you do so. Um, It's so rad. It's a great book. I'm staring at it right now. One of my two copies got rained on in Amsterdam, but it's fine. Fucking Dutch weather. And also... I am currently running on the Weird Medieval Guys Instagram, um, Weird Medieval October. You might have heard of Inktober, which is when you make ink drawings for October. This is where you make weird medieval drawings for October. Um, We've got a different medieval art-inspired prompt every single day, and I am sharing all of my favorite ones um, made by the brilliant artists who follow me on Instagram. Um, So please do head on over to Instagram and take part if you'd like to. And I think that's about it. Woo woo. Well, uh, without further ado then, I think we'll end the show. Say, remember, until next time, keep it weird. Keep it goofy. Yeah. Woo.
bam, bam. <laughs> That's what he sounds like. That's Bob Dylan if he was a clown. Hey, hey I'm a clown. <laughs> Who wants to see me ride my tricycle? I was at the North Country Fair. Because I'm a part of a traveling carnival. I like that it's a Bob Dylan clown with the intonation of Guy Fieri. <laughs> no, it's not. That's a Bob Dylan clown with the intonation of Bob Dylan. No, it's, it has the voice of Bob Dylan, but it's like Guy Fieri inhabited Bob Dylan's body and then went to clown college. It was mostly the first time when you said, hey, I'm Bob hey, Dylan. It, hey, everybody, it's me. Yeah, Bob Dylan. Exactly. You gotta like, the way the way they do Bob Dylan, the key to Bob is you gotta like, say it like he, like he, Ha- give it the rhythm of somebody strumming a guitar really hard. I've been a dog on the road. I met a, no, I can't. I cannot. Is it like Neil? I met a dog. I met a dog. There ain't no use in turning out. Well, <laughs> I met a clown and died. No, I can't. I, I literally a, cannot I do it. I met a clown. It's like some sort of cadence. Maybe it's a man thing. Like my larynx is just not Bob Dylan. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Bob, give Aaron back. We need to finish the podcast. <laughs> that was we. Good job. You got two more minutes of podcast out. <laughs> oh, this is all. You're two minutes closer to the end. No, we're not because we haven't progressed at all. Oh shit! We just got stuck on it's Bob. Very Dylan. Bob Dylan esque, isn't it? You know, yeah, we're in I one know. place, going nowhere. So. So.